we're going to be mainly, well, that's not a good word. We're going to be somewhat in the book of Mark in chapter 5. So there's a preamble. So. Lord, we always know that um, unless you speak, um, our ears are dull and um, our hearts are hard. So we pray that you would open our ears, soften our hearts, and let us hear your word and understand it and just rejoice in it. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a divine plan, obviously, if you bother to think about it and look at it, all the way through Scripture. And um, one interpretation or one way of looking at a divine plan is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. He says, this Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and knowledge, foreknowledge of God. That would be a hard thing to, to know is coming your whole life, wouldn't it? Or at least it the point of your life where the Spirit of God is illuminating these things to you. Luke, of course, wrote Acts in addition to his gospel. And he sees the ministry of Jesus from baptism to ascension as the working out of a drama of the world redemption in which though the people have free will, they're free to act in their own will. The plot has been determined by God. Men may reject God's purposes. The Pharisees and the lawyers did this when they rejected the baptism of John. But the cross is proof that God can turn an ultimate rejection into victory. Luke, like the other New Testament writers, sees that God's plan was both foretold, predicted, and prefigured, a type, in the Old Testament. Foretold in places like Luke 18.31 and 33, where it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man, will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Imagine you're a disciple and this is what your leader tells you. The one that's been doing all these miracles, casting out demons, Raising the dead, and he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. So pack up, let's go. Mm -hmm. 
He's prefigured. He's a type. The exodus in which God brought his people through slavery to freedom made them a nation. He bound them to himself by covenant that he gave one people. And Jesus sets his people free from their sins which enslaved them their whole lives and promises never to leave or forsake them. You know, if you think about Jesus coming to his people and his people knowing not, and you see it prefigured in the Old Testament, you see it in Joseph. Joseph is sitting on the throne, the semi-throne, the right hand of Pharaoh, in charge of where the people live or die. And here come his brothers, and they recognize him not. And the reason they don't recognize him is because he doesn't look like he's supposed to look. Jesus did not look like he was supposed to look. He's supposed to look like a king riding on a white horse, putting down Rome. But he doesn't look like that. And Joseph doesn't look like his brother. Jesus is prefigured in the Old Testament. He's a type. Four times Luke describes the ministry of Jesus as a divine visit. One example is in Luke 7, 16. Says fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Luke shows that God works out his purpose through all kinds of references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, the birth of Jesus. He descends bodily upon Jesus at his baptism. He led Jesus into the temptation by the devil in the wilderness to do battle with the devil. And he anointed Jesus to preach the gospel. In two of the parables, Jesus warns the crowd not to join with his disciples without first counting the cost. Then Luke 14. And he himself counted the cost. He did what he told his, the people that wanted to be his disciples to do. He mingled with the despised and rejected, knowing full well where this identification was going to carry him. He knew what it was going to lead to. And ultimately it led to Jerusalem. Luke 13 reads, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And when the days drew near for him, he received up, to be received up, meaning his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The divine plan. Why did Jesus come? It's a good question to ask ourselves, not just once, but a lot. So that our understanding of who he is 
is firmly planted in our heart. There are more answers than one to that question. But one prominent one is given in Luke 19.10, where Jesus himself says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Mm -hmm. This is the heart of Jesus' ministry, his work of salvation and his searching for the lost. I think eventually we begin to read the Gospels, not just as showing us who Jesus is, but also as an ongoing step-by-step step unveiling of the Father's unwavering ordaining of Jesus' life to seek and save the lost. Again and again, Jesus meets people at just the right time and at just the right place to accomplish God's purpose. It's all over Scripture. Luke 4.14 is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It begins after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. And the verse says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. He begins teaching in the area of synagogue, and then he arrives in Nazareth where he's been raised. And there he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Do you think he does that today? To set the people free that are oppressed, that are blind, that can't see, that can't understand. And all of this speaks to the compassion of God. It's all the way through Scripture, the compassion of God. It's compassion toward a, life, a lost and dying people that he created. He says in Isaiah 54, in overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. In fact, in Exodus 34, God passed before Moses on the mountain and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. This is who God is. He hasn't changed. Not from then, not now, not in the future, not ever. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. So at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he proclaims that he's the one who fulfills Scripture. He's the promised one. He will set the captives free. He will open blind eyes. He's compassionate and gracious. Jesus modeled for us that he is the Lord of compassion, and so his disciple must be compassionate too. You would think that this would be welcome news for the Jews to hear that he's compassionate and that he's gracious. 
but it doesn't take but a moment to see it's not so. Jesus speaks of two instances in the Old Testament where God was compassionate to the Gentiles rather than to Israel in the fourth chapter of Luke. The two examples, one of them is Elijah, the prophet, who was sent to a widow in Sidon during famine. And the famine was everywhere. And scripture says, what Jesus says, they didn't go to anywhere in Israel. They didn't go to the Jews. They went to a, a Gentile in Sidon. And the other example he gives is the prophet Elisha, where Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile, an enemy of Israel, goes to Elisha and eventually, and Naaman's a leper. And eventually, he pays attention to the prophet, and he bathes in the river, and he's cleansed. It says there were a lot of lepers in Israel. None of them got healed. But a Gentile woman inside him got fed during the famine. And a pagan from Syria got healed of leprosy. And nobody in Israel got healed in leprosy. And this is what scripture says. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. There's something wrong with you. God doesn't do that. Well, the people that were supposed to know the scripture evidently had never read this at first Kings about the widow and in second Kings about Naaman. So evidently, you read scripture and you like what you don't and you don't pay attention. You, know, you like this? Good. That's part of scripture. That's God. This? Nah. And there have been people throughout history that have done exactly like You know, I don't like this part. So I'm either going to rip it out or I'm going to pretend that it doesn't exist. Jesus goes next to the city of Capernaum, where he taught in the synagogue, and scripture says the people were amazed at his teaching. We are told that in this synagogue there was a man, possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And so what do we see from that? We see that um, places of worship are not blocked of Satan's presence. He can be sitting next to you in a church. So you better pay attention to what's truth all the time. Scripture. And after leaving the synagogue, Jesus went to Simon Peter's home, where Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Now this is something that would be something you just skip right over, because the other Gospels say the same thing except they just say fever. Luke says high fever. Why? Because Luke's a physician. He knows it's a deadly fever. It's not just a fever. It's a high fever, and she's in big trouble. There are little things like this all the way through, and we don't see them, mostly. And Jesus rebukes the fever, and it left her. 
The sun was setting, yet many of who were sick or diseased came to him, and he healed them. Now they came late when the sun was going down. Why? Because it was the end of the Sabbath. And before that, you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. Now Jesus wouldn't have paid any attention to it, but the people did. So they didn't come to him until the sun went down. And you can imagine it's the end of day. And this is why you see all the time these people like his mother and his brother saying he's he's crazy. He's and he's crazy because he hasn't eaten all day. He's been ministering all day. And here's been all day, and here come the people. So no place for the Son of God to lay his head. In addition, many of the people that he healed, he delivered from demons. And people might have been confused exactly as to who Jesus was. But the demons knew. They said, you are the Holy One of God. So they had no problem knowing who Jesus was. But men, who are not demons, argue about it, fuss about it, and say it's not so. And these healings and deliverances must have continued until late and early the next morning. Because early the next morning, Jesus leaves to pray. The crowds follow him. And they try to keep him from leaving. But Jesus must continue preaching the kingdom of God in other cities too. He says, for I was sent for this purpose. It's God's rule. That's another definition of the kingdom of God. There are many. But one definition of the kingdom of God is God's rule in action. Jesus was sent by the Father. He's got a purpose. He's got a timetable. The Father has his hand on everything. Chapter 4 focuses on the ministry of Jesus to the masses. And now in chapter 5 of Luke, it shifts to the leadership of Israel. Before, Jesus is pictured as a solitary, roving teacher ministering in the synagogue. And now, the full-time calling of the disciples takes place. And the scene in chapter 5 is the Lake of Gennesaret. And you wonder why you get confused with names in the Bible sometimes. And the Lake of Gennesaret is a perfect example because most of the time it's called the Sea of Galilee. And twice in the book of John, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. And it's called one other that I can't remember off the top of my head. And all refer to the same place. And the crowd's pressing around Jesus, listening to the word of God. And Jesus sees two boats on the shore at the edge of the lake where the fishermen were washing their nets. And in the chapter, in chapter 5 of Luke, verses 3 through 11 say this, And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your net for catch. Simon answered and said, 
<clears throat> Master, we worked hard at night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's easy to imagine Peter might have been a little annoyed with Jesus at this point. He's telling seasoned fishermen how to fish. And what does he know about fishing? Especially since they fought, you know, fished all night and caught nothing. And everyone knew, if they knew the first thing about fishing, is that you do not fish during daytime in the Sea of Galilee. No one did that. But being obedient, Peter obeyed, and the men caught so many fish that boats began to sink. And being aware that he was in the presence of one who exercised the power of God caused Peter to become acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And I think that's a, a good clue that the closer you get to God, the more you're aware of your own sinfulness. You know, if you're far away from the light, you can ignore all the shadows. But the closer you get to light, the darkness, if it's in you, it becomes a blinding darkness. Being aware of his own sinfulness, you know the same thing happened to Abraham, it happened to Job, it happened to Isaiah. And the indication is that others who were with Peter felt the same way. And now they answered Jesus' call to full-time discipleship. It's not like this is the first time Jesus had met some of them. But before, it was a brief go out, come back, go back to your job, go back to your family, in Peter's case. But now the call is the full-time discipleship. Now they, they pack up and they leave everything, which might be another indication why they caught so many fish. Provide for your families. Now you're going to be gone for a while. And if you've got a boat full of fish, a couple of boats full of fish, and normally you don't catch a whole lot to start with. This is going to provide for a while. Verses 5, 12 through 16 say, While <clears throat> he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his feet and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
And he ordered him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him. And to the to the wilderness that came, excuse me. So he healed them of their sickness. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You could be healed of every kind of sickness. But you couldn't be healed of leprosy. You had to be cleansed of leprosy. Because leprosy was considered to be judgment of God on your life. So you can imagine how a leper might feel. In fact, let me tell you how one person puts it. He says, we don't know his name. We don't know where he was born or whether he was married or had children or not. All we know is that he was a leper who came to Jesus with a desperate request. Leprosy in Jesus' day was a slow, agonizing journey toward death. Leprosy began with a sense of tiredness and pain in the joints. And then slowly over time, scaly white patches of dry and dying skin appeared on the person's face, hands, and arms. Then the person knew he had an incurable disease. Eventually, these scaly white patches of skin developed into lumps on the face that rendered the person unrecognizable. These lumps burst and emitted a foul stench. As time progressed, the eyebrows fell off. The vocal cords ulcerated so that the voice became raspy and breathing was heavy and wheezy. The final stages of the disease caused caused the loss of feeling in the fingers and toes, and then all mental faculties began to fail as the leper slipped into a coma and died. But excruciating physical pain was not all the leper experienced. Leprosy in Jesus' day also carried a moral stigma because people believed that all lepers were cursed by God. Every other disease needed to be healed, but a leper needed to be cleansed. Lepers were thought to be extreme sinners, dirty before a holy God, and therefore deserving of such an extreme punishment. Additionally, lepers were also treated as social outcasts. Everywhere they went, they had to call out with a loud voice, unclean, unclean, so everyone would get out of the way. It's hard to imagine that it would feel what it would feel like, physically, morally, and socially, to be a leper, leper in Jesus' day. A leper was an outcast in every way, alienated by society, family, and friends, as well as by God. Yet Jesus reached out to a leper as the Lord of compassion 
This compassion, I believe, is the big idea that runs throughout the first half of Luke. And then he goes on. Notice that the leper doesn't ask if Jesus can heal him. He asks if Jesus will heal him. What a powerful lesson for the disciples. People really matter to God. A rabbi would not get within pick a, pick a number distance from a leper. Much less talk to him. Much less touching. Because you're defiled. You're going to catch this. And he's unclean before man and God. And Jesus touches him. And the word that they translate touch means more than touch. It means Jesus reached out and grabbed him. So he didn't just he grabbed the leper in front of all these people. Remember later what Jesus told people that wanted to be his disciples count the cost? Well, he's got Pharisees and lawyers and scribes watching him. And he touches an unclean leper. Are they grateful? Are they awestruck because of what Jesus does? Maybe. But they still condemn him because he did it. People matter to God and they have to matter to us too. And the next recorded verses in Luke 5 show that Jesus is beginning to attract curious religious leaders to his teaching. 17 through 26 reads, <clears throat> One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of them. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, <clears throat> I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before him and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, 
we have seen remarkable things today. You think? <laughs> if you again, if you look at the scripture again, you'll notice that though there was a large crowd, so big a crowd that the people carrying paralytic man couldn't get through. They had to go up to the roof, and all most houses then, or so many of them, have outside stairs that went up to the roof. So you've got a huge crowd standing, listening to Jesus. Except for the Pharisees. They're seated. At this period of time, <coughs> teachers sat while their students stood up. And this could have been a this could be that the Pharisees would not stand because that would indicate a concession to Jesus' authority. So they don't get up, they stay seated. Mark says, at any rate, some men took the paralytic up on the roof. And it just says some men. Mark says there were four. And they brought the paralyzed man on his bed to the roof. And because of the crowd, they got up there, they took away the tiles, and they let the man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus' first words have to do with sin, not with sickness. Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And this provoked a reaction among the scribes and Pharisees, they might not have stood up and screamed, but Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he tells them. They correctly understood that only God can forgive sin, but they incorrectly assumed that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. For making the kind of statement that Jesus made, he could be stoned. Because he was claiming to be God. And that's punishable by death in the Jewish community. They stoned him. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He asked, which is easier? To heal or to forgive sins? If I say your sins are forgiven, there's no visible proof that what I said is true. You can claim the ability without having to prove it. But to command a paralyzed man to walk, the proof is visible. You can see it now. So Jesus has set things up to show that he has the power to do both. He's seen the face of the paralyzed man, and he's seen the face of the four that lowered him down. And he says, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And the man did just that. He got up, he went home, glorifying God. And you might not have thought so, but we're getting to the end of the chapter. Verses 27 through 39 reads, And Levi gave a big reception for him in his home. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people 
I'm sorry. I should have skipped the first two there. And after that, he went out and noticed the tax collector named Levi, Matthew, standing in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes were began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to him, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayer. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wines will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out. But the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. Tax collectors like Levi, and again, Levi is Matthew, were often not only dishonest, but they were a painful reminder of the fact that Israel was not a free nation, but subject to Roman rule and authority. In this case, nothing is said about Levi's dishonesty, so maybe he's an upright and honest person. But in so in celebration, Levi hosts a banquet to Jesus, and the guest list, whether intended or not, includes Pharisees and other tax collectors. And Matthew and Mark say tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, <clears throat> why he eats and drinks with these people. So they asked the disciples the question, but Jesus is the one that answered. And his answers in 31 and 32, it's not those who are well and need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. His answer shows the difference between the heart of God and the heart of the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought holiness required them to stay separate from sinners. Jesus was holiness in human form, but his holiness was not diminished by contact with sinners. In order for God to call sinners to repentance, God found it necessary to have contact with them. So Jesus had contact with sinners all the time. And the Pharisees didn't like it. 
Pressing in on the contrast between Jesus and John's practices, the Lord shows with two short parables that sometimes new things must replace old things. Blending them just doesn't work. The Pharisees were locked in the old ways, trying to follow the law to the letter in order to obtain righteousness. It isn't working then, and it never will. Jesus and the sinners are happy and are developing relationships. The guests are in the presence of the bridegroom, and it's time to celebrate. Lord, help us to, to see and to understand and rejoice, Lord, in who you are. Lord, you are everything. You're the, the promised one. You're the light of the world. You're the king of glory. And we thank you for your word. Amen.